X's for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, Nico here, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. Now, I know that next episode is going to feature our non-stop destruction dragout, where we analyze every page of the finale of X of Swords. But, leading up to that, we still have two issues of Ten of Swords, plus a sort of special bonus to cover. First up, we're going to be taking a look at what was happening on Krakoa in the pages of X-Men with Josh, Maddie, Evelyn, and Arturo. This is a spirited discussion about what it really means to either be an X-Man or a member of the Krakoan society. And it's really phenomenal when you get to edit something like this and hear points you yourself would have never come up with. It's probably the most rewarding part of this whole thing for me. And these four just killed it nonstop. Whether it's analyzing the change in the male leader's in a way that allows them to become more respectful and mindful of their female counterparts, or it's how politics determines mutant society these days, this is one you guys are going to like. All right, we're here in room one, ready to talk about X-Men number 15, chapter 20 of X of Swords, written by Jonathan Hickgod, with art by Mahmoud Asrar, colors by Sunny Ro, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. In this part, Cyclops hijacks the Quiet Council with his family drama, and the most shocking thing about that is that he managed to hold off for 15 issues of X-Men before doing it. Over in Otherworld, the final battle between Apocalypse and Genesis begins. With me today, I have Evelyn. Evelyn, say hi. Tell us where we can find you. Hey, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at comic underscore canary. We also have Maddie with us. Tell us where we can find you guys. Hey guys, it's Maddie, and you can find me over on Instagram at the basically covetous man and with me today is arturo hey guys i'm arturo you can find me at mr toybox on twitter and instagram and we're with josh that's right i'm josh wheel you can find me at asleep at the wheel w-e-i-l on twitter and at asleep at the wheel.com so all right this is it the final rundown hill of x of swords i know in the green room we all said we are so happy that chapters 20 21 and 22 came out on the same day because i don't know that my anxiety medication is strong enough to have lasted a week in between each of these issues oh yeah i think one of the big trends i've seen on x twitter is people referring to this as the wife guy books now that it's the wife guy era of x-men and x-men 15 was absolutely that the story goes back and forth between wife guy apocalypse and wife guy cyclops and like i'm i'm here for both of them because those are kind of the parts that have made them so relatable to me the both of these characters over the last year and a half have gone on a very deeply invested family dynamic journey we've seen one of them finally having recovered his family and regained and getting to kind of build a family life and we've seen the other one struggling at to to reach out and find the lost family that he's been waiting thousands of years for and never knew if the opportunity would actually come and now both of them are here they're both 
they they're they're at the precipice of being able to either get back or keep their family and we get to see how they deal with it and what happens um I think it's interesting the different ways they go about it. And so I'd like to start with Evelyn. Evelyn, since you would see this possibly more from the wife perspective than the wife guy perspective, what did you think about how Cyclops and Apocalypse handled their business in this issue? Okay, so I want to preface this by saying I haven't always been the biggest Cyclops fan. That being said, I absolutely adored Cyclops in this issue. Um, and same with Apocalypse. I, I honestly liked what both of them did, where Apocalypse is doing what's right for his people while Cyclops is doing what's right for his family and I think both of them are in the right they're both doing what they think is right and what they think they need to do with the stuff that Saturnine's been doing with just all the manipulating and all the craziness it was really nice to have some really deep meaningful moments that really bring the like how much is at stake back to the forefront and I just loved it. I like how you put that. I didn't actually think of it that explicit of a way. I was thinking of them more in the way they interacted with their wives and families. But you're 100. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're 100% correct. Cyclops was willing to risk the mutants, his community, to save his son. Apocalypse was willing to risk his wife to save his community and the mutants. And that's a really interesting dynamic, especially when we're looking back on 50 years of X-Men. Like, it is- Where that hasn't always been the case from either character. No, but it is completely earned in this that that is the way they both would act. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that, Maddie? Uh, you know, I think the the dual family dynamic that we're seeing here between Cyclops and Apocalypse is, of course, intentional. But I think it it really set the set the stage for for an excellent issue. I also wanted to call out for a moment. I think the return to nine panel spreads for the uh, Quiet Council's deliberation was uh, was a really interesting artistic choice um, as it pertains to the conversation between Cyclops and the Council. Uh, I I was amazed to see that Jean, not surprised, but amazed to see that Jean prioritized her family over her role in the Quiet Council. Interesting. I want to ask the group a question about those nine panel spreads, because I, I had this in my notes even to ask, and you brought it up, Maddie. We've been seeing nine panel spreads our whole lives, but is anyone in this room capable of turning a page to a nine panel spread and not immediately thinking Tom King? Like <laughs> This was just such a, it was such a nice change of pace from, we've been so deep in other worlds and in this whole like acid trip of, of Saturnine and all these, you know, games and this, we've been on, on unfamiliar ground for, for what feels like week now. And it was nice to just return to Krakoa and to go back to this core group of, of the Quiet Council. And I loved that drama with, with Cyclops and, and standing up to them and choosing, like you guys said, choosing family over over the, the well-being of the nation. Uh, although I think in the end, it all kind of plays out how well, kind of what we expect, that there would be some X-Men fighting and there are, you know, there's a whole bunch of other mutants who are going to be staying on Krakoa going, going about their lives. Uh, but it was just cool to see this deliberation and uh, to see from these players that we haven't seen in many issues. We haven't heard a peep from so many of these guys. Absolutely. And I, I, I had been one especially over the last six issues before this so or the five issues before this um 
where I was less less enthused by uh, what was going on in X of Swords that I would have I had said I would have liked to have seen more of what was going on in Krakoa. I would have liked to have seen more of um, if whether it was through tie-ins or other things, um, kind of the background how other characters were coping or dealing with this because we have such a big we have such a big cast of characters in X Men now, and we had an event that was focusing on nine of our main mutants and leaving out Xavier, Magneto, Cyclops, Jean Grey, uh, Rogue, Gambit, like leaving out so many of our major characters who are normally headliners, Kitty, Emma, that it was nice to get back to them and seeing them deal with it. I really liked from Cyclops that we got the different type of husband role here. Like we got, and this just goes across all of media. I don't think we see this type of husband enough. You know, Cyclops was standing up. He was vocal. He was making decisions. He was proving his point. But never once did he take control over either of his wives. Routinely through both of them, he was turning and checking and consulting with them. I think one of my favorite little moments is his quiet little conversation touching base with Emma during it. Like... He is not like, no, this is what we're doing and you can hate me later or we'll deal with the repercussions later or blah, 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 blah. Like he was a partner with Emma and Jean on this. And it was very different from what we saw from Apocalypse, who was literally fighting with his wife for how it should turn out, Um, which I think is more unfortunately of the type of marriage drama you tend to see between couples is you tend to see them arguing and one of them has to win. And, you know, Cyclops and Gene got to walk off together in this. You know, it wasn't a fight between them. They were a cohesive pair. Um, and I loved that from the marriage dynamic. I really want to gush about this, like, one single panel that I'm just absolutely obsessed with. Is It's, like, the small panel at the Quiet Council where it's, like, there's no dialogue. It's just Cyclops. And we see the reflection of Gene and Emma in his glasses. And I, I posted, like, all over my social media that I'm just so obsessed with that panel because that really goes to show without having to say anything like how much he reveres Emma and Jean and like you said when he checked in with Emma to like be like I would never ask this of you I'm just like oh my god like this is definitely like amazing and like they're all polyamorous and in love with each other and it's one big giant family dynamic and I can't get enough of it that whole page is my favorite page of the issue like those nine panels the Jean Kurt dynamic the Scott Kitty dynamic, the uh, Scott Emma, the the reflection in the glasses, like you said, everything about it. I love that page. How about you, Maddie? Any moments for you that particularly stood out from X Men Fifteen? The Scott and Emma exchange was definitely the the one that that did it most for me. The her willingness to leave the council, his unwillingness to let her, you know, yield her position, her offering up the cuckoos. I just thought it was a very, a very, you know, and they're also not the only telepaths in the room. So it was, mm-hmm. it was a, a quiet and, you know, emotionally reserved, but potent conversation. 100%. Now, are you a Scott Emma? Have you liked them over the years, Maddie? I, I I am I am a Scott Emma Stan. I, I love Gene and in a time before Hickman's turn with the X-Men, I thought it was an and or situation. And turns out it's just and. Uh turns out everybody's just with everybody, so if there's no need to choose, yeah, I'm all for it. If Gene doesn't get left out in the cold, yeah. 
No, this is he has found the best solution for them, and yeah, he's that's, that's, it, why, that's he's, why I call him Hick God. He's not he, Hick Man. He's Hick God. He's really sold me on Scott and Jean being together again because I'm I'm a diehard uh, Scott and Emma fan. Like when they got together, I thought that was like that was the most interesting time for for Cyclops as a character, and he showed some growth and really like stepped up to kind of the role that he had always been building up. Uh, and I think he couldn't have gotten there without him. So it broke my heart when, when they split up and things kind of fell apart. And I guess I've been a little salty about it since. But he's really sold me on on Scott and Jean. I still think there's something a little off about them. I have felt that way since you know House of Powers. Uh, but he definitely seems happy. You know, he he definitely seems like himself. Uh, Scott does it. There's something off. So now Jean Grey gave up her spot on the council. Right. Ultimately, there'll be two open spots in the coming months, and we'll get to that second spot a little later. Maybe even three, depending on what happens to Sebastian Shaw um, in the follow-up to X of Swords as well. So I'd like to ask you three, and let's start with Evelyn. Who do you think should fill the Quiet Council spots now that they've come open? You know, I was immediately thinking about that after I processed everything, and I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> like, I was thinking about this, like, within a few hours of reading it for the first time, I'm like, I have absolutely no idea who should fill these seats. There's a lot of people that are worthy, but there's also a lot of people that have other commitments. So yeah, I really don't know, but I'm very curious to see who who wants the position as well as who ends up with the position. I think there's a lot of people that would want it as well. So I'm just, I'm so curious. I wonder if another Gray is going to end up with it or Summers or whatever their last name is um, at this point, like um, with uh, the people doing the resurrection protocol, if maybe one of them would get it or maybe Rachel you know, I was going to say Rachel, too, but I feel like Rachel has her hands full now in the pages of X-Factor. You know, um, I feel like I feel like X-Factor Investigations is going to be a full-time job for her. But I feel personally like I would like to see Quentin Quire take Jean's spot, if for no other reason than we're swapping out a telepath with an, a nearly akin a telepath. Oh, God. God. Quentin Quire on the Quiet Council arguing with Sinister would just <laughs> would... be... I, I kind of it, it would just be obstinately. Imagine how insufferable Quentin Quire would be. Uh, I kind of would like to see Rogue step up into a leadership position. I think, Ooh. yeah, I think we've seen we've seen that. That's in her history. She's definitely has stood up as a leader before, and I think it'd be good to have some caliber representation at the table. Um, I like that. Yeah, I think I think Rogue would be a good a good fit for the apocalypse. I am. See, that's oh. one of the things that, like, one of the people that I was thinking about was Rogue, but I was thinking I don't know if she would want to be on the council she would be amazing leadership but yeah i just i just i mean storm is already here right she's she's absent from this meeting but storm's on the council uh i it's always been weird to me that cyclops isn't part of the council but i i'm i'm okay with it because he's the captain commander and now he's obviously going to be leading more of this you know the heroes of Krakoa, so to speak. Yeah, I really like that Cyclops and Wolverine are not on the council. Yeah, I think it's good. I, well, I mean, Wolverine, I'd like not being on the council, but Cyclops has always felt like like part of the, you know, he, he defined the X-Men's approach for so long. And that's that's what so many of these people have. Um, they've had to approach. I don't know. Well, that's why I love him as a captain, because that's really who he is and what he defines him. And I think he fits that role 
so well. You know, I think I think speaking of heroics, we should uh, we should pay a little bit of attention to the data page disavowing the use of the term X Men. Yes. yes, yes, I do have that uh, as our next topic as well. Um, I want to jump in real quick. So, people I'd like to nominate for Quiet Council, the ones I've thought of. Um, I think that if we get an X-Corps book eventually or something around Angel and Monet, one of the two of them representing X-Corps in there, um, the Quiet Council just feels like a perfect spot for Roberto da Costa. I think think Roberto da Costa would be incredible for Black King. After we kill Shaw, put him as a Black King. There you go. Yes, I like that. There you go. And then, okay, so let's say that um, M, Monet, St. Croix, takes Jean's place. I'll put Roberto in Shaw's place. And then I think the best one I've heard this week that absolutely 100% I think needs to be on the Quiet Council and she can take Big A's place is Callisto. Ooh. Ooh. That's a cool idea. Damn, that's a cool idea. Oh, hell yeah. I definitely understand uh, putting her in Apocalypse's position on the Winter Council um, so that all mutants have a, have a voice and a representation. Those who side with Charles, those who side with Eric, and of course now the Morlocks getting representation. So we have an interesting data page about how the Quiet Council decided that there would be no more X-Men, but Cyclops doesn't give a shit and does some X-Men shit anyways. What do we think about the future of the name and the group X-Men? And if that's going to be something that comes into conflict with the quiet council and maddie you can get us started you know i definitely think that it'll come into conflict with the quiet council as we're seeing here on the Krakoa government data log page the use of the term x-men is to be disbanded as those of us who have read ahead we know that that is not the case i am curious now to know in what capacity the x-men will function in in terms of their representation for Krakoa's government but I'm I'm moreover interested in maybe having X-Men in that case take over for X-Force. Uh, X-Force having been of the Dawn of X, one of my lower tier titles. And I would uh, I would definitely love to see that counterintelligence angle spun around the the illegitimate use of the term X-Men as opposed to the term X-Force. Interesting. Evelyn? I can definitely see Cyclops being like, well, I will just leave the X-Men since we're not on the council anymore. I can totally see him doing that. And Gene being right there with him being like, yeah, let's just do the X-Men thing. Let's kind of do our own thing and become like this rogue entity that the Quiet Council does not control. And I feel like they're going to come into heavy conflict with that. And I definitely see Cyclops being uh, like a little spoiled brat towards uh, Xavier a little bit with it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's inevitable that we're going to get a little bit of a, God, and I don't even want to put this into the universe, but an X-Men Civil War or a Krakoa Civil War. You can find a better way of saying that. We got to, I know, but I mean, guys, it is going to come down to X-Force versus X-Men over some, you know, moral, morally ambiguous, you know, theoretical question that comes into, into canon 
and they're going to have to deal with something. They're going to have to fuck shit up. Okay, so we can see the split on the Quiet Council. There's people who are definitely anti-X-Men, and they're going to be your sinister Exodus, you know, Mystique, your Shaw, people like that. And even though Magneto and Xavier voted with them, there was that great moment at the end where you could just see the how proud they were of their boy. And, like, I love that they've evolved into these elder statesman roles, that they're just like this, you know... They're like the happy old gay grandpas now. Yes. Um, Oh, yeah. That was such a great moment. They're such a couple, you guys. They're such a couple. It's the sweetest thing. So sweet. Even though they voted against them being able, like the council condoning it, Scott did exactly what they wanted. So I feel like in a way, like that there might not be enough votes or enough to get that big of a conflict. Like, if anything, it might cause more frustration or dissension from the sinister exodus. I don't remember the seasons. I'm sorry, Maddie. Uh, but the, oh, so good. Uh, winter. The, winter. From the, uh, the, the winter table over there, the winter corner of the Quiet Council, who don't like that, you know, they all agreed that there would be no X-Men and now everyone's letting X-Men do X-Men shit again. Mahmoud Asrar has done an amazing job with the art and even more so these first couple pages out on Krakoa. What Sunny Ho is doing of matching Marte Gracia's color choices and that we can have two colorists now giving us this beautiful, vibrant, definitive hoxpox feel on the pages when we're in Krakoa. I I just think it's fantastic. It's amazing that they've gotten two colorists who can really be in sync and work like this. So that way we can have this over more titles. I loved the art in this book. And I think the last thing is is just Apocalypse. We didn't really talk too much about his fight, right? Uh, we saw that, you know, he didn't want to hurt his wife until she asked him to yield. And then we saw Crucible Apocalypse come out and he tore her ass up. It was so, okay, the, the Apocalypse roller coaster that I've been on through this entire damn event. And then it's like, I have been dreading this battle. Like, looking forward to it and dreading it so much. And the way it played out was just so incredible. I was, like, cheering from page to page. And I was just happy to see him, you know, holding his own. Although, we know he's not out of the woods yet by the end of, end of this yeah. issue. We, we'd seen him hamstrung so much by his emotional attachments to this that it was a much weaker apocalypse than we'd seen in the past. Which was a little off-putting sometimes because we had just seen our strongest apocalypse really in the Crucible issue of X-Men only earlier this year. I want to say that came out around January of 2020. It's hard to... 2020 has been going on for so many years now. It's hard for me to really keep track. But um, it wasn't that long ago that we saw the Crucible issue. And and that's what I like to, you know, like when when she wounded him, when she like stuck that emotional dagger in by asking him to yield and we saw him like phase switch from I don't want to hurt my wife to you know what, I've got to get shit done. And, and it held so true for the character because they've built both sides of him. They've made him a complex three dimensional character where we see the emotional side that's hurting him and holding him back in this battle. And we've seen the strong side and how it needs to come out. And then there it was. Okay, so I've, I've mentioned it a few times, but I have this like whole theory about the power levels of Apocalypse throughout the entire Hawkspox, where with Hawkspox happening, Apocalypse's goal was 
scene was accomplished of having a entire place for mutants where they can be safe and be happy and thrive. So when he's in the Excalibur, you see his power levels aren't quite up to where we're so used to with him being just so powerful. And then we have the knowledge that his family is alive and you see him, he has a goal again. He has motivation again to do something and get stuff done. So we see his power levels and ambition levels rising constantly trying to get to the other place that I can't pronounce at the moment. (laughs) And it's just so beautifully done. And then once we get to X of Swords, we see that there is the possibility of his main goal of creating this mutant paradise is in trouble. So he has to just come out and really defend it. And so the second that she says yield, that's like the catalyst where he's like, no, I have to like, to make a Dragon Ball Z reference, assume my um, final form to really defend what he's doing and what he needs to do to protect what he believes in even if that means sacrificing his family like he did the first time i am i am i think uh we should definitely definitely save that for later in the week because what you just said there the um we will definitely see something in the final chapter that we can refer to as super scion apocalypse oh for sure you know, I thought it was a fantastic issue. I think that the the family dynamic duality between Scott and Apocalypse was was the emotional anchor of the book. I definitely think that it was a great start to a good week of books and a great start to the last installment of or last series of installments of Ten of Swords. Hundred yeah. percent. My biggest issue with Ten of Swords, and we'll, we'll get into this next episode as well, is the structure. And I really just feel like somehow these last three chapters that we all got together are the act three, that act three is only three out of 22 issues. Um, but it, it turned the corner and started that downhill run so well. Um, I, I loved this issue. Arturo? Yeah, I, I loved everything about this. I loved, uh, I, I just all hail Apocalypse. I love seeing him in action. I love seeing him step up and uh, survive that, that first skirmish with, with his wife. Uh, and yeah, I, I think this, this does a great job for opening up this third act. I think the third act is incredible. Uh, and I think it also has laid some tea for what happened now after those everybody's swords gets put away put away or shattered as the case may be because far too many of these swords just shattered and and let's give it up to the whole x crew here because i don't know that i ever could have foreseen that we'd be in a place where week after week i'm talking about how much i love apocalypse or gorgon or gray crow or like they have given me love for characters that i never thought i would and it's Part of what has made this such a great ride. Yeah, not to mention caring about characters like Iska and Genesis and, you know, like characters that just didn't even exist before this. Hey guys, Nico here again, and the action returned right back to Otherworld with the final issue of Excalibur of the Ten of Swords crossover. In this clip, Nathan, Kyle, Jonah, and myself discuss how the idea of Captain Britain and the central lore behind it are irrevocably changed by this issue. And we have to wonder a little bit about a particularly unusual love spell. Also, there's a lot 
of Yu-Gi-Oh! references. A lot. Yeah. Enjoy! Hey everybody, this is Nico Action, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey everyone, I'm Kyle, and you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey everybody, it's Nathan, you can find me online at DazzlerAOA. And I'm Jonan, you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonan. We hope you survived this experience. You know, I was surprised by how many people survived Excalibur number 15. I kind of wanted a bloodbath, I guess. (laughs) I didn't... Well, I at least wanted an Iraqi bloodbath. Okay, okay, oh, yeah. I'll give okay, you that. Okay. I'll give you yeah. that. <laughs> now, okay, I think the thing that in many ways was super undersold throughout this event, and not in a negative, not like I'm complaining, it was, okay, let's slight rewind. If you've read Excalibur 15, you've probably read Destruction by now. All said and done, this crossover did not work with fluidity as I'd expected, but rather worked in sort of stages. Now, I'd love the first 11. I was maybe a little less crazy about the following 12 to like, you know, like 19, 18 kind of area. I do think it picked back up, but the fact that this was all about Annihilation was never really treated with the sort of honesty it deserved. I feel like Annihilation is the bad guy of this. And in so many ways, it was the Iraqi the whole time. Yeah, yeah, mm. I I definitely see that. Having Annihilation be so um, hidden in the background of everything that we were learning up to the start of this, and even into Stasis, it was kind of misleading to me that it ended up being so focused on it. Mm. Yeah, the evil helm, yeah. it was, this was the haunted mask yeah 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 no because we don't really see up beforehand we don't really see annihilation and genesis fighting in like these last three issues we're like oh hey genesis is trying to fight annihilation it just wasn't very well foreshadowed and i feel like that distinction between genesis and annihilation really got the shaft frequently they were referred to as annihilation or genesis when clearly it sort of is a more complex hybrid so Jonah, this was your first ongoing X-Men crossover. We are here at one of the penult at the penultimate chapter, and I found myself a little thrown because like of all of the things you said you were looking for, Storm to show up and be badass, Magic to show up and be badass, Iska and Bay to show up and be super cool, right? I still feel like I didn't get what I was exactly looking for from that connectivity, but ultimately I'm pretty happy. How are you feeling about the setup of Excalibur 15 and the execution of this final idea? Going into this, I was really on the fence of how I was going to feel, because this was something I predicted a while back, that they were setting up for Apocalypse and Genesis slash Annihilation to fight one another, and it was going to be Apocalypse overcoming it, or Apocalypse was going to die. Whatever that outcome was going to be, I knew that this was going to lead up to this big fight, but I feel like they decided that they didn't even want to do that fight anymore. It was this weird conundrum where we didn't really get the fight between them, because Apocalypse's conflict didn't really seem to be with Genesis, it seemed to be with Annihilation, but Annihilation wasn't revealed to be this, you know, sentient villain. We knew, oh, let me rephrase that. 
it wasn't revealed to be the antagonist of this story. We knew it was a sentient being that controlled who, the wearer. But having it be... The, I'm just, I guess, maybe conflicted. I'm not exactly sure how to feel about this. Because I don't know if I fully buy the story that they're trying to convey. And I think it's because that story that they're trying to convey is a little bit mismatched. When we think about who the rivals are, I, I do kind of think of it as Apocalypse and Genesis. And I guess that makes Saturnine and Annihilation rivals. Oh. But okay. at the same time, I feel like Saturnine's role in this issue, playing Puzzle Queen, was <laughs> really, really an interesting step for her. Saturnine has mostly stood on the sidelines and been like, oh, I'm so funny. Oh, I'm so funny. Look at me, be witty. But like here, she's like... <sighs> All right, I need to find the outsides first. <laughs> um, where are the Betsy corner pieces? <laughs> and that really sort of changed things for me because this is the first time I feel like she got involved for the sake of the good guys winning. There's really no other way around reforming the core. Yeah, The core is about justice. It's not just some strong arm. And for her to sit there and be like, I'm going to rebuild Betsy, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, speaking of Saturnine, something I really didn't love, I don't get this Saturnine Shogo thing. Ugh. I don't yeah. get it. It's creepy. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's almost like she's kind of, she's talking down to him in a way that it, it doesn't feel like it represents his power, I guess. And it's certainly not motherly. No, no not at all. I would say it kind of feels like, you know, when you've got the cartoon villain and they've got the, the pet henchman, you know, like Dr. Claw with his cat and Inspector Gadget. That's kind of what their relationship feels like to me. Yeah, I, I really get that. And she's like, if you want to rain hellfire, maybe we can. And I'm like, <laughs> I thought you were just like, little boy, no, the door's that way. Like, I, I, I don't understand what she's hoping to get out of stealing this child. And then I really don't understand what her motivation is is in trying to continue this this i don't know i don't think this is my favorite iteration of saturnine uh, yeah uh, the whole ten quick, of swords event really bummed me out quick question why did she turn into maximilian pegasus for a moment <laughs> what page honey no you your impression of saturnine was maximilian oh. pegasus <laughs> uh, i'm like what page is that i don't remember that. it was like a chibi death thing <laughs> oh yeah that she's kind of like, listen here, Betsy boy. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh, when, it's, she's, yeah. when she's doing the puzzle and she's like, ooh, she's like sitting there drinking her, I guess it was wine. She's like, ooh, I'm making this puzzle of Brian. And then when she gets done, she's like, oh my God, it was a puzzle of Betsy all along. Wait, hold on. Yeah. I have a question and I'm very fascinated. And it, I, it, wait, so there's a there's a magical puzzle, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And and she's all like, Betsy boy, maybe she actually is. Maybe this is a Yu-Gi-Oh duel. There's magic cards. Right? Maybe, right, and there's monsters maybe that they can summon. Maybe this is a Yu-Gi-Oh duel. Ooh, <laughs> and yeah. Um, how was she confused that that was going to be Brian? Yeah, uh, I right? don't like, get that either. I mean, I don't she, remember Brian being shattered. Yeah, she she was the one who put the. I mean, who created the Starlight Sword? She should have realized that the one who shattered with it would end up being the one that was created with the pieces. Maybe she was hoping to get a second Brian out of this. Maybe. Right? I mean, Maybe she, like it a, is the multiverse. A, yeah. And that is a significant part of this because the fact that this is the omniversal palace 
is so significant. She's playing it super cool. She's playing it super easy. But if she loses, like, I mean, everything dies. So one of the reasons that I don't love this Saturnine being like, oh, boo-hoo, I'm going to play puzzles. <laughs> like, one of the reasons that I don't care for it is she knows what's at stake, and she's not a fool. This Saturnine frequently feels foolish in a way I've never seen Saturnine behave. Yeah, yeah. I definitely see that, uh, especially since Excalibur 13. Yeah. Mm. When Betsy and Brian and Jamie pulled the uh, the curtains over her head. Which seems now way impossible. Right. Like, she's shown to be so all-knowing. How did that happen? Well, uh, I think she was thinking with a different body part than... <laughs> Uh, her magical all-seeing eyes. Okay, I'll accept that she was just off her game. I could buy that. What I kind of can't buy, and I want to buy it, but I kind of can't buy it, is that Jubilee just shows up and she's just like, hey guys, I have fairy enforcements. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's like, just like, oh good. Oh she's my god. Here. Like, oh my god, they're here. Come on guys, let's fight. And she's like, hey guys, pat, pat, boom. And I'm <laughs> like, Jubilee has honestly not contributed enough to the story, not to not earn her spot, but this book had like six cavalries over the course of three issues. There's the X-Men issue cavalry where the X-Men get involved. There's the Excalibur issue cavalry where we see the return of Jubilee. And then there's a lot of cavalry in destruction. And for that reason, I find myself kind of like, you're just throwing more armies at the problem. That's not really progressing the story because part of what this all started as for me was an intrinsic and deep look into the innermost thoughts of a lot of these characters. And what I'm walking away with it from is um, clank, 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 clank. That was the sword fight. Uh, just but, keep throwing swords at it. But yeah. were yeah. even many sword fights, and I just want to touch on something you said, Nico. You're posing these nine characters, from Krakoa, there are nine sword bearers. You're posing these nine sword bearers, this idea that everything that they've worked for for the past few months is at stake, and that if they lose, they lose everything. And instead of a story about how they deal with those repercussions and what that responsibility means, we get these weird, petty games that Saturnine is playing, mm -hmm. all in this ploy to make a love spell work. Ugh. It's this weird... Uh, truthfully, and I, I don't really want to use this word because there's so much great work that this team has done either throughout this story or previously, but it's very reductive to have this all-powerful woman kind of boil down this entire match and this entire game she's playing to win a love. Mm -hmm. Like, really? I very much agree with you. And there were a few other places that I felt like there was a little bit of a misunderstanding of the fact that this was kind of silly, horrible games on that same topic where it's like, oh, she's just trying to engineer a love spell at the cost of reality. Weird. You can make a Bryant, right? There's that exchange on page nine of the digital edition where Iska says, what's the matter? Scared you can't repeat your previous record? How many of your precious knights had to die before you stopped that blind old lunatic? To which on page 10, White Sword says, the Gorgon was a worthy competitor. My men who died were worthy too. But, and I'm not trying to be that guy, but Iska is infinitely older than Gorgon. 
Yeah. So why is Iska calling him a blind old lunatic? And a number of their ilk don't even have, like, eyes? So I don't know that I would be like, he's Blightzik ableist. And, like, uh. so there were things that didn't quite land for me here. And I don't know if it's just the fact that they worked so hard to expand the earlier parts of the story that it kind of did leave the end feeling like there's just too much to cover. Like, that yeah. might be my problem. Too yeah. much to cover. Yeah, whereas, like, the, the middle chapters went off rails because I didn't expect it. Like, these last few issues seemed like, oh, that's exactly what I expected, and yeah, I wanted something different. So, like, and, and yeah, having Iska be this, like, caricature of, like, this ununderstanding person, having Saturnine be this caricature of, like, a single, lonely, horny woman in her apartment with her cat doing puzzles, drinking wine, is just, uh... And, you know, at least we did get a couple of really cool moments in this issue because, you know, the art was gorgeous. I, I don't think the art had any kind of like, oh, that didn't like the art on this book was amazing. The other thing that I really want to praise was Bay the Blood Moon in this issue was like such a badass. And like the fact yes. that she thinks oh my she God, can yeah. protect Doug forever on Arako is adorable, delusional, and oh man, when she takes a shot at Apocalypse and Apocalypse goes down, that's that's a moment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that that was like did that just happen? Did did I see Apocalypse get taken down by Bay? That is amazing. And I honestly I I think everybody on on our team has has agreed that Bay is one of the group's favorite characters in this in this event she's and... just straight up oh my god so you would agree <laughs> that bay is bay bay, bay is bay bay so... always on the beat <laughs> so seeing her being that powerful and yet tender with doug is it's endearing and it really made me like her even more than i already did yeah so, George, i know you had been a hardcore bay stand from uh bay one <laughs> so Tell me, does your base stand continue to let its big flag? Fly? I don't. I, I talk. Well, after that, I don't really want to follow that up. So, no, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> I really did enjoy Bay. Bay, uh, as when when the sword bearers of Araka were revealed, Bay's character design is one of the ones that stood out to me. I thought she had one of the most interesting designs. I think her headpiece is so cool. Uh, I mean, we love a giant woman. I love that Doug has to stand on his tippy toes to try to give her a kiss. It's just very adorable and cute. Her being th this uh, contrast of having her be so powerful and strong and this dominant character, but having those, you know, those little bit of that slowed down gentle moments with Doug was really sweet. I do have a question. Was Doug about to talk about him being a virgin? Was that... <laughs> Was that what you were going to reveal? <laughs> because that's the only thing I can think of. And like, is this is this hocus pocus where the mate where Doug is getting made fun of for being a virgin by literally everyone? I'm just virgin lit the candle. Yeah, and he's trying to light her candle, but I don't think he knows how to. And he's going to have to ask Warlock Friend to see what to do, because Warlock Friend is also still on Doug. <laughs> don't worry, tough friend. <laughs> yeah, like, I actually was shocked that there is not, like, a single moment that Warlock spoke. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I that was distracting. 
I'm very surprised that Warlock hasn't shown up since they left Krakoa. And I'm shocked and disappointed. I, I really wanted to see Warlock and Doug teaming up, not just mm-hmm. as a sword. I wanted to see them as that team working on these challenges and especially since there were really only there there were only nine sword bears it would have made sense if warlock had shown up and been a tenth person i was like i get it before not before that new mutants issue because they didn't really know that warlock was still alive and you know we didn't know if he was still a fully formed individual but after that issue we knew he was warlock of old so like why didn't he show up why wasn't he fighting he didn't even say so much as still friend be careful marriage is bad or something i don't know like he never challenged bay to protect yeah. doug when bay just is like um so in my world marriage means i get to abduct you come on and like <laughs> it just felt like a lot of things i kind of expected to hear in a very specific clear oh warlock's here and instead it's sort of like check out my cute new warlock jacket mm. another like another thing that was weird to me is like just two pages like not two pages but a few pages before doug's almost about to i don't know i thought he was going to tell bay he loved her but maybe he was going to tell her he's a virgin like two pages before he's like golly gee apocalypse i would run from my wife and then like five pages later he's like oh i love you like oh yeah Yeah. like and that sort of star-crossed love between worlds really it really makes me think about how a certain page of this book actually changes the entire crossover And I just want to point out something about the love spell and how it actually like retroactively changes the entire arc. If you take a look at the love spell, it says to restore the heart's true protector to be cast in time of need. Components, a lock of hair from the intended, stardust collected during the highest peregrine, and the shattered heart of a great desire. The procedure is, at the west-facing front of the tallest structure reachable by the caster, step Wittershins round whilst summoning thy intent. The height from which the spell is cast is proportional to the power of its use. But be wary, and keep your eyes open. Many beasts seek lovers as prey and feed in high places. Cast the lock of hair away. Collect a pure heart shattered in a time of greatest need. These can be difficult to obtain in a trying world, but can be prepared in advance by the caster if they cannot be found. It is a cruel and heartless thing to shatter one's greatest hopes for the love of another, but those unlucky in love are oft willing to sacrifice. She really was hoping Brian would be shattered. Yeah. Yeah. But then here's where it gets a little bit weird. When your desire is greatest, assemble the shattered pieces. They will take the form of the heart's true protector. Mm. Be patient and await your answer. Warning, love spells are typically cast by the young and foolish, and their inexperience and lack of power is often a blessing when the spell goes awry. Powerful casters are encouraged to utilize better judgment and other methodologies before resorting to love spells, as the backlash can be great. Do not confuse true desperation with the ego of desire. I'm not saying that in any way Betsy and Saturnine, you know, I don't really ship it because I think Mm. Betsy deserves better than this slag. Mm. But at the end of the day, Betsy was the only one who could save Saturnine. I think that's the lesson. I think that kind of has to tie into the last line. Saturnine was, while it was desperation, it what I still think that she could have done a lot more in her own power to prevent a lot of what was going on. Agreed. And I, th- I yeah. think in that moment, that was more desire than it was desperation, which is why it turned out to be Betsy. Do I fully think Betsy's the protector of her heart? 
No, I think that Saturnine misjudged her own feelings and couldn't see within herself, even though she is all seeing. And that's why Betsy showed up in the mosaic. You know what just dawned on me because, like, I, I feel really stupid at this. Like, this is what she was doing in Stasis. <laughs> like, I was yeah, like, this is I, that spell facing yeah. the highest corner and, like, let my magic be true or whatever. Uh, I feel so dumb that I didn't realize it until now. I'm like, oh my God, that's what she was doing. But yeah. <laughs> and it's even timed with Brian coming to her. So she probably thought the spell was working. Yeah. And that's uh... probably even why Betsy was able to fool her. Of course, the question becomes. How naive is Saturnine at this point? I'm not trying to be insulting, but Saturnine specifically is supposed to be so wise and so great. And she used a love spell on Brian. The very book in which we discover she used a love spell says, only used by the young and foolish. More wise people are considered to use better judgment. But it doesn't seem like that's this Saturnine. So now the question becomes again, is this still the true Saturnine? Or is this some sort of fractured baby Saturnine? Is this some piece of her as opposed to the true woman? Mm. You see, oh. this is her German cousin Saturnine! <laughs> and we've been mispronouncing her name this entire time. And uh, the German Saturnine knows what she wants and she wants Brian. This is an actual Baluda Saturnine. Oh, it actually is a real thing. There actually is a Nazi yeah. Saturnine. Oh, yeah. God. Okay. Yeah. Like a sex puppet Brian. Yeah. Hopped yeah. one glad. Yep. Uh, yep. I didn't know that, and I was just making a joke. <laughs> is is it possible that when the uh, Captain Britain Corps was destroyed in the past, and then we had all the craziness with the multiverse kind of disappearing, that that also affected Saturnine when it got restored? They could have. I, they said that uh, after the incursions of Secret War that that's what's changed Otherworld from what we knew to what it is now. So maybe? Yeah, maybe she transformed with the landscape. Mm. Like it's, she is a reflection of Otherworld. Not like in a mean way, but reflection is not an Otherworld. Reflection is not, whoa. Otherworld is not a reflection of Saturnine. She's just not that special. But yeah. like, huh. I could imagine her being a reflection of it, right? Like all the times we see her grazing into a pond and just like looking back at her own reflection. Mm. It's not just because she's pretty. It's because yeah. she also could be a reflection of the world. I really like that read and how it explains mm. her transformation. Also, side note, when the mosaic was formed, did anybody else think, well, now I really want to play as Betsy in Kingdom Hearts? Yes. <laughs> oh my like, God, yes. All I could think was like, man, I'm going to run up those stairs and I'm going to pick the sword because I want to be Betsy or I also want to pick the shield. Just don't yeah. set it so that it's magic heavy. No one wants to play that way. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was so confused. Like, so right before we they reveal the mosaic, like, is that like a Betsy Thor? Like with her sword, like her like psychic hammer or like that's just... Oh yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, but how, when, when do I get my series of the Captain Britain Frog? Mm -hmm. oh, well, I absolutely oh, need a series of Magical Betsy Swan. Yes, yes. Uh, Violet Swan is like my favorite of the group. And of all the things we've said and all the different ways we've pointed it out, it does still remain that in her initial moment of, look what I did, I did the most powerful spell ever, and it's a huge magical spell, everything I wanted. And she realizes it's Betsy. <laughs> the first thing she does is punch her in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a slap. It's not like she spits on her. It's a punch in the fucking puff face. <laughs> and, like, it's, it's so stunning to me 
because the rage she is able, she just did all of this. She just worked so hard for all of this. And this rage comes through in this single moment. Like we don't see Saturnine punch. So for Saturnine to not just, you know, be like, Hey guys, I'm going to be working on this puzzle. And, uh, that's a totally different Saturnine. Voice. Sorry. <laughs> hey guys, I'm going to be working on this puzzle. Right? Oh my now, God. Right. And now all of a sudden she's just like, Oh my God, punch. It's a lot of, you know, I'm convincing myself I like this more the more we're talking about it. <laughs> Still don't love it. She's like, Still come not. hither, Brian. Oh, fuck, it's Betsy. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, you get that one, you get that other one. So, Ugh. of course, it goes without saying that probably my favorite page in the entire issue is the page that does feature the Captain Britain Corps returning. And... Look at how purple they are. I know. And so now it's a Captain Bretzy. Wow. It's a Captain Bretzy Brewer. It's a Captain Betsy Core. And I just think that that's a really special change. Like, this isn't just, oh, the core is back. This is, the core is different at its core. For that reason, I feel like we're due for some huge changes to Excalibur, Betsy, and probably even the lore of Captain Britain. You know, we have Lionhearts, we have Albions, we have Captain Britons, but now they're like Captain Betsy Britons. Mm -hmm. And when we started all of this, the core was dead and Brian was evil. You know, this is a very different place than the last page of Excalibur number one. And I love that. I love that yep. there that gives us a a hope. It gives us a vision of progress in this world. Um, not just in relation to mutants and Krakoa, but the entire multiverse. We now have all this new life springing forth. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, something that a lot of people say to me, because everybody by now should know that I'm like, the biggest Captain Britain fan that should be allowed to be born in the United States, right? That's yeah. something really interesting. When I'm like, oh, I'm such a big Captain Britain fan, and everyone's always like, oh, watcher, oh, Roy, where do you pick up your copies? Do you get them on the deli in the Londons? Or whatever. Ooh. And <laughs> I'm always like, no, I was born in America. I buy my comics in America. I live in America. And they're always like, oh, <laughs> probably like the Doctor Who TV movie. Oh. Like, Leave me alone, because his like webisode the the eighth doctor's webisode that was amazing to the whole special was so amazing so eighth doctor gets tons of credit in my book forever but you know i do admit that i don't always understand some of the sword and sorcery high magic high art of british comics but one of the things i do love is captain britain however i've always been bothered that captain britain is this dynamically phallic thing yeah, they eventually gave him a sword, just to kind of give him a sword. But his stories were always kind of like, I'm a bumbling white guy with everything, with my muscles and all of my money. I'm a scientist. Like, he has everything. He's unlikably perfect. But he makes all of these stupid mistakes. Every version of Captain Britain is some version of him. So Brian is this consistent throughout reality. But Wait, uh, does that mean, like, Linda McQuillan was a copy of Brian Braddock? <laughs> no, Linda McQuillan okay. was married to a man who had been Captain Britain oh. and was executed by the Fury. She mm. took his helmet and helped save the day. Oh, okay. Yeah, I missed that part of it. Okay. So, yeah, that was part of it that didn't get published in the United States for a really long time. And I hate to say this to you. You're going to get so mad at me. Please don't get mad at me. Do you know where you can read that stuff? 
Where can you read it? The Omnibus? I'm that so is, sorry. I'm so sorry, Nathan. The $300 Omnibus? Ugh. Dude, the craziest thing, the way I got that <laughs> Omnibus for so cheap was the cover on it is Alan Davis Bryan, but the variant is classic Herb Trimp Captain Britain. Uh, so nobody wanted it because he's in that costume in that omnibus for like 12 pages. Huh. So nobody wanted that cover. And that cover was constantly getting like um, clearanced out. And I got my copy of Captain Britain omnibus that way for like $63. Like, oh, wow. My copy is beaten to high hell. Jonah can tell you, like my copy is like, it's crinkled in places paper should never crinkle. Ooh. And the binding is more like a an unbinding at this point. But it's if you can like find ways to get them or if you find the old printing and the new printing has some new pages in it, you can do some really interesting things with getting Omnibuy on the cheap. So always keep a lookout. The Herb Trimp classic Captain Britain from the 1970s cover always goes for a little bit less hmm. than hmm. Alan Davis. So just keep your eyes peeled. Yeah, and even the trade paperback, the Captain Britain by Alan Moore one, even that one's like 50 bucks just for a trade paperback. I'm Oof. like, ugh. I wow. worked at a comic shop when those two books were like starting to get a lot of traction, those two trades, the two trades that basically form most of the omnibus. And like every time someone would come in with trades, I'd be like, "Can I look at your trades? Um, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna price them. Uh, come here, I will price your trades." And I eventually actually gave those trades to my cousin, who loves them more than anything, and she still has them to this day. She's amazing. But, yeah, Captain Britain stuff is exquisitely expensive. And kind of for no reason. And this ties back into what we were just talking about. We were talking about how Captain Britain is at his best, kind of a dumb blonde himbo. He's super about his folly. And he is constantly driven by foolish mistakes. Mm -hmm. When he's not being driven by foolish mistakes, he's uh, probably uh, being driven by Pete Wisdom. So, <laughs> foolish mistakes. And this re-identification of the Captain Britain lore, this transformation of the idea of Merlin's greatest knight from a man to a woman. And not just a woman like Kelsey Lay, who, phenomenal, and please don't ever come at my lion heart, but yeah. this is a different idea. This isn't a woman adopted the Captain Britain identity while Cap Britain himself was working on the Omniverse as a Magistore in the pages of Chuck Austin's Avengers, yeah. just before Avengers disassembled. She would later resurface in the pages of New Excalibur as a potential villain and then would reform because she's the best. Oh, yeah. But we legitimately get a woman is the idea of the reverberating notion of Merlin's hero. Now, what that means for storytelling, I don't know. But I'm really excited for the chance to redefine the Captain Britain paradigm in the same way the X-Men have redefined the mutant paradigm. So would Betsy really be Merlin's hero if she doesn't have the amulet and she has Saturnine's uh, sword? I mean, the Captain Britain core are Merlin's heroes. So like, I mean... You know, Merlin's got to come in and talk about this. Merlin's got to show up and be like, I did not sign off on any of this. Uh, I need him to check the receipts. He could be getting kittens to be killed, so. Yeah, if somebody could just check that shipping manifest for Roma, she feels like there's way too much magic right now. <laughs> Knowing that the next cover of Excalibur features a rather regal Betsy sitting on a throne, I think we're in for a significant change in Betsy and her behavior as well. 
Betsy has long acted as though she's not welcome. I don't know that there's a better way to put that, but there's no version of Betsy that isn't the outsider. When she joins the X-Men in the first place, she feels very much like she's sitting in with them. She's just at the school. Then she goes with them to the Outback, and let's face it, all of the X-Men were outsiders in the Outback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She comes back in a new body, and she's a stranger to herself. And every change down the line from there, Betsy has never been somebody marked by surety. I look forward to a Betsy not just marked by surety, but capable of moving past the in-between she's been trapped in for the better part of 40 years. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time, and while this next title might not seem like an X-Book, in so many ways, Power Pack is eternally connected to the X-Men. Power Pack was created by Louise Simonson and June Brickman, and both of them have ties to the X-Universe. June ties into the sort of Bill Sienkiewicz era of New Mutants, while Wheezy Simonson, or Louise Simonson as she's properly known, contribution to the X-Men cannot possibly be overstated enough. In this next clip, Raven, Rod, and Robbie take a look at Power Pack's newest incarnation that came out this last week and take a look at how it fits into a modern superhero universe. It ties into the pages of the Marvel event Outlawed, and we hope you guys enjoy it a lot. All right, y'all. Welcome to our segment of the show. We are talking about Power Pack. I am Rodders. You can find me at Rod, the on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. Type it in. You can find me everywhere. Also, we have with us Robbie. And you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. All right. So before we get all into Texas Swords, we're going to start with Power Pack. Power Pack is coming back and it's mm-hmm. going into the outlawed event that's going on right now mm-hmm. i don't know if any of y'all have read the outlaw event but i like it pretty much i like what it's going for it's kind of like a civil war but with children so yeah it's like i need to pick up more <laughs> issues to maybe make this make a touch more sense i think it yeah. would but a uh, power pack is written by ryan north and the artist is nico leon all mm-hmm. right and then the colorist is rachel rosenberg and then mm-hmm. letters by vc travis lanham all right so i I, I definitely would recommend if you haven't read the other outlaw issues, at least the first two, because um, I think the first two issues are out of the event. I would go read that probably before mm-hmm. you read this, listeners, because we already all read it. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it definitely helps with the ending of this issue. But mm-hmm. so for me, I don't really know that much about Power Pack. So I really enjoyed the intro of this mm-hmm. book because it explained what Power Pack was. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. So I know what they are now. Cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and I actually really liked that they they made it very much a childlike perspective of you know like a little girl drawing a comic book kind of thing going on, and yeah, it was it was really cute. It was really endearing. It's one of the few times that I'm like, okay, I can totally deal with childlike art that works. It yeah. fits uh-huh. until I saw the child, and <laughs> then I w- then I was confused because it felt like it the the intro had been written by somebody who's maybe Younger. five 
six, seven years old. Mm -hmm. But when it shows her, she looks like she's in her early teens or maybe 12. Yeah, I think she's I think she's at least like the way they were making her talk. uh, Mm -hmm. I feel like she's maybe 10 at least. Mm, Okay, maybe. But they made they really drew her really big. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's really big Mm -hmm. for a 10 year old. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, like like her older siblings, I didn't think were supposed to be like that much older, like, you know, that that much older. Um, And they seem to be like in their latter teens. Yeah, I know. I did yeah. read. I did read them in the before. I think Dan Slott's run of Fantastic Four. They were in the Fantastic Four and that mm-hmm. whole debacle. And I read them in there, and they were older in there. But because they were in that um, that time dimension thing with mm-hmm. with uh, Reed and his family, that's how the the siblings. I mean, the children in the Fantastic Four grew up so fast because they were in there for like I don't know, like five years. So that's why the Power Pack, the two siblings, have grown up so fast because they were also in there for like five years with them creating worlds yeah and mm-hmm. i remember uh julie appearing a lot in runaways over the mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. and um which it was cool to see her dating carolina or carolina for a bit yeah yeah that was nice i remember that that was a nice yeah. little thing yeah and it's it's like i'm not minding that they're they're older now i just it was a little bit of a disjoint to go from thinking that i'm reading something from the perspective of like six seven eight year old to so, somebody who looks like they're about 12 yeah no I, I yeah no i definitely got that as well when i when i got done looking at it because i thought maybe the artist got one of their kids to draw it i was like oh that's so yeah. cute but i don't <laughs> think they, did. I think they would have credited yeah. them i don't think they did but <laughs> as soon as it turned over i was like so she did this I was, i'm like she's bad yeah <laughs> i'm yeah, like I, I can't judge because i'm not a good artist but man like i feel like she should she could have tried a little bit harder <laughs> yeah well and it was just like the language that was even used in the spelling mistakes mm. and whatnot yeah. that tends to look yeah. like you know somebody who's just learning to do it and they're trying their best and you're like yeah kid you could do it i completely understand why you're misspelling things because you're an absolute child and then i'm looking at her and i'm going girl how much school did you miss like <laughs> well i'm not even mad at the art it, it was it was the spelling for me <laughs> yeah yeah they i think they they definitely i think the writer was like oh this is you know children are most two of them are at least children other two are like adults slash teenagers or whatever we don't mm-hmm. really know their determined age. We know they're much older. Um, yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm going to write at least the youngest one. Like, the youngest one. <laughs> going to write him, right? write her really, really young. And I kind of get it. It's it's endearing. You're like, oh, look, she's so cute. Oh, she's saying quirky things. Mm-hmm. But it kind of throws you off looking at it. Because um, yeah. even when they, when uh, later in the, in the issue, when she transforms into her suit, they make her look younger after she transforms. They yeah. do, yeah. So- yeah, that was, that was kind of confusing for me. <laughs> It's weird. And like I said, I don't really know much about Power Pack. I know about Julia and um, the other older brother. I can't remember his name because they were Alex. in Fantastic Four a little bit. Yeah, Alex. Yeah. They were in Fantastic Four a little bit and Julia was in Runaways a little bit. So that's how I know them. But everything else, I was like, oh, they have cool powers. I want to turn into a cloud. That'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Mass master. <laughs> but my thing is, what doesn't make sense for this is like, how do the parents not know that their kids are super? heroes when the kids Listen. don't wear masks they don't right? wear masks that's some like sailor moon shit right there that they don't right <laughs> that's some super man shit right there Oops, change clothing can't be my kids like really I, I, <laughs> like not even not even like a little energy mask or, or something like a halo or you know, like something to obscure the face anything and no there's nothing i'm like i'd be looking out my window going oh shit is that that is my those are my children on the 11 o'clock news what the shit Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? The one thing I really did like about this issue, though, is like he, I feel like the writer really gets the family dynamic down. Yeah, like they have a really good back and forth with the kids and the parents mm-hmm. and the siblings with each other. Like it's mm-hmm. nice. I thought it was. I like that's like probably the main focus of this book because I mean it is a family true. book. True. So enough, I, true as long as he gets that down, I'm like I can kind of give leniency to like the powers being kind of kooky or like the mm-hmm. fact that they can't don't know that they're superheroes. But well, yeah, and, and it's yeah. it's the first book of a reboot so mm-hmm. you know it's it's gonna be you know getting that training wheels up to speed kind of thing so oh yeah, yeah I, i'm not mad i'm just saying there's little things they can tweak and hopefully they will because this looks like it has really great potential to mm-hmm. be a fun young reader book especially so yeah hoping with this all this outlaw thing and i'm sure their parents are probably gonna find out that they're superheroes because i mean mm-hmm. you know they're gonna the government's gonna you know dna fingerprint whatever and find out who they are and, <laughs> and then go oh. to their parents so well, and if your uh, kids go for like a walk around the block <laughs> kind of thing and then they don't come back oh you better believe somebody's gonna be calling the cops like something like, right i'm i'm assuming that power pack's probably not gonna last that long and mm. they're probably gonna maybe like join the, the champions or something like kind of like evolve mm. the power pack that okay. would be really cool at least right? for one of the members to join mm-hmm. yeah. maybe like the two older ones i don't know mm-hmm. well i don't think they would leave the two younger ones behind though because they still need a lot of mentoring and guidance yeah because i mean energizer um the uh the little girl she only thought of herself as a gun like she only thought of herself as a destructive weapon and uh her older sister julie um she taught her no you're you're not a gun you're not just a, a weapon for destruction you can dial it back just a little bit and spread it out a little bit and it makes impact without killing something and i i'm i'm glad that they have a group of kids who are actually using more strategy than most of the grown-ups. <laughs> they really, they really oh. are. And I, I really, I did like that Raven. I really like that, um, that little addition to be like, hey, I. It was really like heartwarming, kind of sad to be like mm-hmm. to, to notice that this young superhero is like, oh, I'm just a destruction. I'm just mm-hmm. use. I could, my powers could kill people. I'm just a weapon. It's like, no, you can do other things. Like that was really like. I'm glad that we touch on that with young superheroes, especially with the outlaw event because that's basically yeah. what the outlaw event is about is young superheroes using their powers to almost kill people and that's you know not being a thing so. yeah they they did really really good with that and that's why i'm like yeah I, I can totally see this being a really good book especially for younger readers mm-hmm. instead of you know dumping them straight into like oh i don't know say say x-men which i enjoy x-men highly but for younger readers that might not be quite um age appropriate or introduction appropriate and you know because you know the x-men there is a lot of you know battles and sexual innuendos and and jokes that would probably go over the head so this is a good way to start that's yeah i'm sure yeah i mean in x-men and all in avengers and everything is a lot of like half naked people all the time (laughs) it's just just like these are fully clothed children and you know Mm -hmm. they have a family they have a good they they love each other and now they're you know lying to their parents and fighting some bad guys so it's it's all, all things children do in their in their age as they grow up you know life mm-hmm. things but also cute like for for that um villain uh the boogeyman <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine oh. being one of them and just walking up to that man and he and he goes i just want to eat some dang orphan i'm like <laughs> <laughs> like yeah what <laughs> it was so weird yeah. i was like you just want to eat some children 
specifically orphans. It's not all children. Just right. ab- aband- right. ab- abandoned children taste better. Apparently, right. you know, they just they have that extra sadness flavor. So. <laughs> well, it, it, it's the tears. It, it kind of self seasons. Oh yeah, you know what? There you go. <laughs> but I, you know, I do wonder with like his phrasing and things, and how we see a lot of things from Katie. I wonder if it, if since we're seeing a lot of things from her perspective, if she's maybe like kind of seeing i don't know him saying things a little differently if that makes sense maybe yeah that's kind of what i was starting to formulate as as i'm i'm kind of here flipping through the pages real quick and i'm sort of wondering if this is her retelling the story and maybe that's why some of the the phrasing some of the things that they say are a little bit different so maybe it's this story is being retold through energizer Mm -hmm. and you know that's why it's like i just want to eat some dang orphans i mean like that sounds like something a kid would possibly say and you know a kid's not always going to remember exactly what you know an adult said or you know phrasing and whatnot and sometimes they'll just condense it down to the bits that they did understand Mm. so maybe the story is actually being told through her which would which would actually kind of shift my my thought process on that and go okay yeah no no okay yeah yeah Yeah, because that's exactly what i was thinking with some of that dialogue because i'm like i know there's some goofy ass villains out there but <laughs> Damn. But this yeah, kind of like takes the the cake with that. It would yeah. make the most sense because I'm also on every page. She's like the center of attention. Yeah. So, so it would yeah. make the most sense that maybe like at the end of this book, we'll get her, you know, telling this story to her new group of heroes, maybe the champions or something. I don't know. Like <laughs> I, I'm really stuck on them being champions because I want them to all. I want all the young heroes to be in like one book. That way, you know, we keep seeing them because yeah. I feel like if you spread out the young heroes too much, they're going to get canceled and we won't see them anymore. Right. So I'm just like, I'm trying to be hopeful. Like, just put them all together so they can, you know, kind of last a little bit longer. Right. Because honestly, they had a better group dynamic than a lot of, like like I said, a lot of adult uh, team-ups, mm-hmm. a lot of adult groups, which was kind of great because you actually have them talking out strategy before they do something and, and like kind of a, almost like voting by democratic process like okay well how are we going to do this because the last time we did this we we almost got creamed so we got to make sure that a we don't kill anybody and b we don't put anybody in like danger and c Uh that we come back alive so we got to be careful we have to be strategic about this so i'm like Uh shit they're actually talking over what they're gonna do so that they can stack attacks versus you know like i love wolverine okay i love wolverine (laughs) but there's no thought process it's mostly okay somebody big throw him at something that needs to die and that's it <laughs> yep that see that speaking of like wolverine and other heroes like other like avengers and all that if you think about it um groups like fantastic four work so well together because they've never had to be heroes on their own basically but mm-hmm. with the avengers all those heroes have either started as superheroes on their own mm-hmm. or have gone on on their own and then come back to the group so they're fighting they're usually like oh well i'm number one i can do this on my own i don't need to like I can be part of a group, but you know, I got this. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're like, I like this group dynamic as kids because they've been a group for a long time and they're growing up realizing, hey, I can't do this on my own. I need help. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And like, are they, uh, are that yeah. we work t- together better as a, like they would like yeah. what the older brother said, he's like, hey, you know, don't run. He told the younger brother several times, hey, don't oh, yeah. go off on your own because mm-hmm. you're going to get your butt kicked. We all have to work together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was great how they stacked attacks. Um, doing exactly that 
that. Like, you know, Mass Master wanted to just go plowing in so he could get there first. And Zero G, the older brother, it's like, uh-huh. no, no, we, we, we got to do this correctly. So we take him down the best way. So yeah, like Energizer starts off with a round of blasts. Zero G goes in for a hit with a car. <laughs> and then Mass Master does like the smartest thing I've seen in a long time where he builds up speed first and then shrinks himself down and just nails the baddie in a kneecap. <laughs> yeah, like, that was Dude, fun. that's smart. <laughs> that is really, that was really fun. Really I like that a lot. Yeah, and it's like, and for once, they addressed mass because it's like, okay, if I'm if I'm in cloud form, he was out and like really nice and spread out. So he uh-huh. still had the same mass as he would as, or he, he still had the same weight as he would if he were standing in human form, but it was uh-huh. spread out into a cloud. But oh. yeah, when he shrank down into that tiny form of his and he hit him in the kneecap it hurt because it's his full weight into uh, one tiny spot and i'm like oh that's brilliant they really did like think this through that makes sense okay i, I like that i like the i like the power sets they have it's really interesting mm-hmm. it's not usual you know i like it yeah yeah um, and they've, they've gotten creative with it they definitely have they definitely explain it really well in this first book which is one of the reasons why mm-hmm. I, I liked it a lot like we kind of get it all, all of the intro and explain to their powers in one issue you mm-hmm. know i don't i don't feel like i don't know what they're gonna do the next issues obviously i mean obviously it's gonna go on outlaw but i don't know if they're gonna explain anymore but i feel like they did all the explaining they're gonna have to do basically with their powers and their dynamic in mm-hmm. this issue and this issue does have its flaws but i i, I really enjoyed it i'm excited to like read the next um things i think it's only Me like too. six issues i don't know if it's, I think it's five five okay that makes sense um but i'm excited to read the other four and to see where it goes because i like this issue I, I felt really happy after reading it <laughs> yeah i'm like yeah the more we discuss it and the more i realize that this is actually probably written from the point of uh the youngest member it uh-huh. makes way more sense like the the dialogue makes more sense the the way they presented it makes a lot more sense and so yeah i i, I think i'm gonna read the rest of this uh run to see where it goes because hey that's kind of interesting because maybe they will tell the story from other siblings points of view as well yeah i would really like that actually that way we could get more of an idea of their personalities and things mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. yeah. and um this is definitely a group where whenever i read stuff about them i sit there and i'm just like how can we never really have ongoings from them right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm thinking i'm just like maybe that i think with this outlaw thing i don't know what the what the on- what the outcome is of what the plan is for this but i feel like the plan probably is either to add more to the champions and make them more established in like the law of the government like make it so okay so you don't question young superheroes anymore Mm. or to establish a whole new group like outside of the champions Mm. i think it might be much more like an avengers type situation where they sort of bring them into the fold Mm -hmm. and make sure that they're being mentored correctly and that they're holding to certain values because i think one of the worst things you could do is is have a rogue child with superpowers who goes in and accidentally kills somebody and then has to live with that kind of guilt and ptsd from murdering somebody so young i mean yeah that was so that, that was the plot of civil war so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah we, we that, that's happened that's i mean that's i feel like that's the outlaw was in the making for a while 
They mm-hmm. just kind of put it off because other so many other events happen. So, right. right. <laughs> but they're like, oh, we can do this now. We have so many young superheroes. We can do this because we do have yeah. a lot of young superheroes now. So many. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I really do miss reading uh, Avengers Academy. Mm-hmm. So I would really love another book that aimed in that style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I, lo- I like the new champions. I forget. Oh, I can't remember her name. She wrote the, um, I believe she wrote the Ironheart series right before this. But the, the the champions, it just it's going along obviously with Outlaw. Oh, and the is first it issue, the first Eve? two issues came out. I think it's Eve. Yeah, Eve Ewick. I think so. Ewick. I think Ewing? so. Ewing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I don't. I believe it is, but I she I really like it. I the first two issues I believe came out of the champions already, and it's I like the dynamic of it. It's basically you know it's mostly just Riri Williams, uh, Miss Marvel, and, and uh, Spider Man Miles Morales. So because they're the main leaders of the group but mm-hmm. i really the dynamic is really well done and it's based and it talks a lot about um the times like pr- police brutality and all that so yeah go give it yeah. a listen listeners if you haven't i mean go give it a read if you haven't <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean final thoughts on power pack i definitely think it's um it's gonna take a little bit more refinement but um seeing as it is a book made for younger viewers i think it did a job well and i can't wait to see what more they do with it mm-hmm. yeah if it if if i just gave this to like a seven to eight year old to read i feel like they would love it so oh, yeah it, it definitely, definitely did its job with that all right 